Amen. Take your Bibles, remain standing, and turn to Genesis 14. Genesis 14. If you need a Bible, uh, there's one in front of you. Turn to page 11 in the Pew Bible, and we will read Genesis 14. In the days of Amphorel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Ketolemar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemambar, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalemar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalemar and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavath Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Ketalemar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amphorel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketalemar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed 
be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord in many hard names. <laughs> Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are indeed God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And though there may be battles among nations, battles within our relationships, battles even in our hearts, you are a God who can bless his people in the biggest of messes. I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to the preaching of your word, that your spirit would penetrate deeper and farther, and Lord, you would bring freedom and release cleansing and forgiveness, grace, mercy, and peace where it is needed in each person this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series through the life of Abraham. We are here in Genesis 14, as Pastor Chris read for us. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Follow along as we go through this chapter here. And this chapter, as you heard Pastor Chris read, is filled with battles. In fact, three battles we have read here. And it is a vivid reminder to us that we live in a world at war. Human history is littered with battlefields all across the world. James Boyce writes, Nothing is as common to the history of the human race as war. The earliest surviving monuments tell of wars. In fact, the earliest of all historical records, other than the Bible, show soldiers fighting in close battle order, all with shields and helmets. In other words, war is an inescapable reality of the world in which we live. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, man has been at war with the Holy God, enmity with God. And because unsaved man is at war with God, mankind, humanity, is now at war with one another. And so this morning, we are looking at the very first war that is ever recorded in the Scriptures. And so if you have ever read your Bibles, then you know there are actually many battles, many wars that are recorded in 
the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of battles and war, but the very first one that's ever recorded in God's Word is found right here in Genesis 14. And here in Genesis 14, the author of the book of Genesis, who most people, scholars believe, is Moses. He acts like a war correspondent as he now recounts for us one of the first military campaigns that took place in history. Now, some of you may be aware that a year ago last month, Russia invaded Ukraine. Scott Newman, a reporter and editor, writes, and I quote, After a year of war in Ukraine, all signs point to, the, to more misery with no end in sight. Nearly a year since Russia, Russian forces rolled into Ukraine, there are no real signs of a way out of the conflict. Neither side appears prime for an outright military victory, and the progress at the negotiating table seems just as unlikely. Neither side has released figures lately, but analysts estimate that about 200,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded in the war so far. By comparison, Ukraine has seen some 100,000 killed or wounded in action and over 30,000 civilian deaths. Meanwhile, neither Russian leader Vladimir Putin or Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky shows any signs of backing down and abandoning one of the largest military conflicts since the end of World War II. For the civilians, though, caught in the crossfire, that means the bloodshed and suffering brought on by the war has no discernible end, he writes. This is basically what happens to Abraham here in Genesis 14. A war breaks out between several kings with very hard names to pronounce. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for doing that for me. And Abraham now engages in another battle when his nephew Lot is caught in the crossfire. And so what we see here in this chapter is a life of faith in a world at war. In, in this chapter, specifically, Abraham himself shows us, and this is the big idea of the chapter, if you're taking notes, that as sojourners in the world, we, we ourselves, we will encounter a world at war, but a life of faith. Listen to me. Abraham shows us here that a life of faith is dependent on God and is devoted to the Lord, who, as Melchizedek says, is God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so here we are. We have a world at war, and it intersects with Abraham's journey of faith as a sojourner. And on the surface, this incident is merely, it just seems like this international conflict, this power struggle between several pagan kings to ensure some economic superiority. But underneath the surface, underneath this first battle, this incident actually serves as a backdrop for a far more important battle within the heart of Abraham. It's also a picture of the battle that resides within every one of our hearts here this morning. And the question for us here to answer is this. What, what are we meant to take away from this historical account of a battle in 
a recent episode of the Rockman Review podcast. Hein Gomans, a professor at the University of Rochester who specializes in war termination theory. In other words, how wars end. He said this, and I quote, War actually does something that we cannot do in peacetime. It lets you see on the battlefield how strong you really are, how resolved and how strong your opponent is. And in addition, know the attitude and the behavior of potential allies of either side. So one of the basic characteristics of war is that it provides information. And that's what this international battle does for Abraham. It reveals something for him. It reveals his faith in most God high, the possessor of heaven and earth. It shows Abraham something that he cannot see during peacetime. It lets him see for himself just how strong his faith really is in God. It lets him see what he has learned as a sojourner in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. In other words, this battle that Abraham encounters, it will show him just how much he truly is. He really is dependent on God and devoted to God in his life of faith. So let's look at these battles, three battles in particular. The first battle we're going to look at, we're going to see it in three different acts. Three battles in three acts. Act number one, we find the battle of kings. In many ways, Genesis 14 is all about kings. In fact, the word king occurs some 28 times in this chapter. Verse after verse after verse, we hear nothing about God in the beginning of chapter 14. In fact, the horizon at the beginning of this chapter is entirely earthly, and the action is entirely human. But we learn of another king at the very end of this chapter who reveals to Abraham that God is sovereign all the kings of the earth. That God's hand is guiding history to achieve his redemptive purposes for mankind. Now, we don't know how much time passed between Abraham's separation from his nephew Lot and the battle of kings described here in verse 14. Remember, Lot separated from Abraham, and he moved on to the Jordan Valley, pitching his tent near the city of Sodom. We learned that back in chapter 13. He was drawn by the enticements of the world, and he began now to live for himself. Abraham, on the other hand, he moved his tent and he settled in Hebron, right in the middle of the land that God promised to give him, the land of Canaan. And we are told at the very end of chapter 13, the last verse of that chapter, verse 18, what Abraham does once again. It's interesting. In fact, it is significant for his battle that he will face here in chapter 14. If you go to verse 18, you see that Abraham does what? He builds another altar. The altar, if you remember, represents his fellowship with the Lord. It represents his worship of the Lord. It represents his dependence on the Lord, his devotion to the Lord. And there he builds another altar to the Lord. But understand 
This battle of kings, it only makes the pages of the Bible because of Lot's presence in the city of Sodom. And so sometime between chapter 13 and 14, Lot moved from the outskirts of Sodom to now living in the city of Sodom as he pursued the world's worldly pleasures and prosperity. And you almost have to assume here, you wonder, it makes you wonder at least, did Lot, did he not have a clue what he was doing? Is the guy just a total moron here? Does he not see anything around him? Does he not understand the choices he's making? He seems not to have a clue how much harm he was putting himself into, his family into, when he moved near Sodom, and now he's living in Sodom. But the reality was that Sodom was part of a group of five cities, each with a petty tyrant king located in the valley, Jordan Valley. And you might, if you're familiar with it, near or along the Dead Sea. But in verse 1, we are also introduced to a coalition of four kings from the east. And so what we see here, give you a big picture of this first battle scene, is we have two different alliances between nine different kings. So this is the battle of kings, nine kings in particular. They're divided into two different alliances, four against five. And if you want to fill in your notes, here it is. The eastern alliance of four kings are Mesopotamian kings led by King Cordelomer. We see that in verse 1. And the western alliance of five kings are Canaanite kings near the Dead Sea. You see that in verse 2. And this all sets up. This international conflict now that's going to take place in the land of Canaan. Let me just walk you through it here. Three different observations or points. Number one, the Western Alliance of Five Kings revolted against the Eastern Alliance of Four Kings. Now, why? Why are they rebelling? Why are they revolting against this? Because for 12 years, those kings had served King Cordelomer and paid him some sort of tribute tax. And then they had enough, and they revolted against it. They basically said to this chief king, oh, you're greater than we are, and we'll pay you this amount of tax, and we'll be loyal to you in exchange for protection. But in the 13th year, this Western Alliance of Five Kings basically said, enough is enough. We're done with paying you tribute tax. This is extortion, and we're not going to pay you anymore. And, of course, King Cordelomer would have none of this. And so he basically says, okay, I will form an alliance with my own king buddies, and we'll put a stop to this revolt, which leads us to the second point. The Eastern Alliance of Four Kings then waged war against the Western Alliance of Five Kings. And we learn that in the 14th year, King Cordelomer forms this alliance to suppress the revolt of the five Canaanite kings. But what's interesting is that King Cordelomer here uses all of this as an opportunity to teach everyone living in the land of Canaan a very painful lesson by brutally attacking and ransacking all of the cities in the land along the way down to the Jordan Valley or the Valley of Siddim near the Dead Sea. In fact, you read there in verses 5 through 7, it describes the 
unstoppable power of this alliance, conquering city after city, nation after nation, illustrating for us the power of this army led by King Cordelomer. Let me just summarize it to put it simply. No one in the land of Canaan was able to stand in the way of this powerful army. And that's what Moses wants us to see from this. He's setting up this for Abraham's battle against this army. And he wants us to see how formidable this army is, how powerful this army is. And now these four kings, after basically attacking and ransacking nation after nation, city after city, as they move from north to south to the Dead Sea area, they're now ready to do battle with the rebellious, revolting Canaanite kings, which brings us to the third point. The eastern alliance of these four kings defeated the western alliance of five kings, plundering their cities and taking Lot captive. A battle took place in a valley near the Dead Sea. But what we read here in chapter 14, it was not even a battle, really. It was like five sewer rats taking on four elephants. These five kings were were crushed by the more powerful alliance of these four kings. In fact, the battle is so brief that you don't even read of any fighting here in chapter 14. Instead, what do we read about? We only read about the kings of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah doing what? They are running for their life. They are fleeing with some of the men falling into tar pits and other men fleeing to the mountains. You see that in verse 10. And of course, to the victors go the spoils of war. And so we read here in verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and they went their way. But all of that, the first 11 verses, is to set up what we read here in verse 12. Because it's the real kicker. Notice what happens. They also took who? They took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, just consider with me for a moment the the painful irony of this pivotal verse about Lot. What a sad commentary on Lot's decision in the previous chapter. Lot had greedily chosen the best part of the land, but he did so pitching his tent near a very sinful people in the city of Sodom. And now his choice has proven disastrous. Lot had chosen to act on the basis of economic self-interest, but now all that Lot seemed to have gained by moving to Sodom is now lost. In fact, one pastor, author, he writes, Lot's fate illustrates a clear principle of the dangers of giving ourselves to worldly consumerism. When we throw our lot in with the world, dedicating ourselves to gaining as much as we can from the world, we necessarily tie ourselves to the world's fate 
And in the case of Lot, it was captivity, it was exile, and eventually destruction. You see, Lot was was lured away by the world. We learned of this last Sunday in chapter 13, and now, now he finds himself taken captive by the world. And from a human perspective, all hope for Lot seems lost. But that's when we read in verse 13, and oh, is verse 13 filled with the grace and mercy of God. Look at it. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, or Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eskol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. This is the first time that Abraham is called a Hebrew. That word, that term, simply means one from beyond. It designates Abraham as a stranger in the world, a a sojourner in the world. That is depicted by his pitching of tents and his building of altars. Here's the point. If Lot now is to be saved from the enemy, to be saved from the world, to be rescued, he must be rescued by Abraham the Hebrew, the the sojourner who pitches his tent and builds his altar in dependence on God and in devotion to God. That is the one. That is his only hope in this dire situation. And of course, this is where the battle of kings now intersects in the life of Abraham in Act 2. And it is the battle for Lot. Now, Here's the thing I love about stories. And by the way, most of the Old Testament is written, they're stories. They're, they're true stories. And we are to see ourselves in the story when we read these stories. Remember, Abraham is a mirror of our own lives. It's a reflection in which we see ourselves in the life of Abraham. But also, we might even see ourselves in the life of Lot. And that is something for us to consider. This morning, right now, in the course of my life, am I more reflective? Is my life more reflective of Abraham? Or is my life more reflective of Lot? There may be many of you who see yourself like Lot here in this situation. We're we're going after, we're pursuing the things of the world, and now we find ourselves in captivity to the world, in captivity to sin, and now we are in desperate need of a rescuer. We, We need a mighty warrior who comes to our rescue. And by the way, that is exactly what Abraham does here for Lot. And may I remind you, as we're going to see here in a moment, that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for all of us here in our own captivity of sin. Woo! What a glorious picture we see. Beginning here in verse 14, Abraham is now this mighty warrior in this battle for Lot. But if you are Abraham in this moment, how would you respond? You see, Abraham faces a choice right here, right now. Should I get involved or should I just walk away? What would your choice be? What would you do? 
You see, one option for Abraham is to accept that Lot, well, he's just getting what he deserves. After all, Lot had made a very bad decision. He moved into a wicked city. He, he lowered his standards. He compromised with the world. And now that city has been conquered and Lot has been taken captive. He is simply getting what he deserves. If he had not been living in Sodom, he would not have been taken captive after all. Now that is one option that Abraham has before him. Another option is to simply leave Lot's deliverance up to God. After all, God is in control, right? God is the God most high. Therefore, God can take care of Lot how he sees fit to deliver Lot. Maybe this is God's way of just getting Lot's attention. And after all, I would not want to interfere with God's discipline of Lot. That's another option for Abraham. And all of that sounds rather very religious, does it not? In fact, it sounds extremely spiritual. Yes, Lot made some really bad choices in moving near Sodom and then into Sodom. And yes, he has been taken captive as a, as a result of his own choices. And yes, he is far from the Lord. He is now far from home. But let God worry about Lot, not Abraham. As Charles Swindoll writes, great-hearted people... Don't judge others for having needs. Even troubles they have brought on themselves, great-hearted people see the crisis of another as a call to action. This principle is clearly stated in the New Testament when Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And that's what Abraham does. Why? Because Lot is his kinsman, his relative, his brother, if you will. Today would be like a brother or sister in Christ. And this is exactly what Abraham does in verse 14. It says, when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so now we see Abraham's battle for Lot. We see Abraham pursuing Lot with his army of men, rescuing him in victory over the enemy. And you just got to stand back and be amazed at Abraham here, right? I mean, what incredible courage by Abraham. What incredible faith on Abraham's part. Abraham's immediate response to, to the crisis of Lot is what? It is to go. It is to go in pursuit of Lot with his 318 trained men. In fact, it says the word here that is used by Moses is so captivating. It says, Abraham led forth his trained men. You know what that phrase means, led forth? It means that he drew them out. He drew his men out as you would draw a sword out from your sheath. In other words, these men were now Abraham's sword, unsheathed and ready for war. Abraham, we might say it this way, he's the original brave heart here. He was the William Wallace who was leading his men in a battle for Lot. And so here's Abraham, this, this mighty warrior. 
And he seems to be blessed now with this, this great mind for, for military, a, a great military mind. He, he strategically implemented a forced march, a surprise attack from various positions at night. Look what it says in verses 15 and 16. And he, that is Abraham, divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, this is extraordinary, especially when you understand how powerful this army is in the first 11 verses of this chapter. This is extraordinary. Abraham and his army journeyed well over 100 miles to rescue Lot and set captives free. How is that even possible? How how does Abraham do this? I mean, where did Abraham all of a sudden get the courage to do this? Because remember back in chapter 12, at that time in chapter 12, Abraham didn't even have the courage to tell the people in Egypt that Sarah was his wife. But now, now here in chapter 14, he has the courage to face the most powerful army, it seems, on earth, led by King Korolamer that has not lost one battle yet. And so from a human perspective, this was a battle against all odds. Although we don't know how large Korolamer's army was, it was certainly way bigger than Abraham's army of 318 men. But Abraham... Abraham defied the the overwhelming odds to pursue Lot. And notice that he did it without any guarantee of the outcome. In fact, you may be wondering, was Abraham successful? Well, on one hand, he was because he pursued Lot, rescued Lot, and brought him back. But on another hand, he wasn't because you go back, you read two chapters later, and where is Lot? He's back in Sodom. He doesn't learn. So what what made the difference here for Abraham between what you see of his courage in chapter 12 when he's fearful to tell about his wife and now here in chapter 14 where he displays massive courage and the difference is Abraham's dependence on the Lord. That's the difference. Abraham has now grown in his faith in God. Abraham believes God's promises that that this land would go to his descendants, and therefore he knew that God was with him. And even if he met defeat, he believed that God would still keep his promises. Whereas in Egypt, he relied on his own resources. He relied on his own wisdom, his own power himself. And it got him into a whole mess. But now here in Canaan, he was living in profound dependence on God Most High. Now just imagine with me for a moment here. Those, if you're Abraham, those 120 miles back to Hebron, where he had pitched his tent, and his travel back to Hebron after rescuing Lot and all his possessions, and even the women and the possessions spoils the war of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just imagine how euphoric Abraham must have been. 
Just imagine the celebration. It would be like us just a few Sundays ago after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. What were we like? Right? Were you? I, I, I was acting like a fool jumping up and down, celebrating the Chiefs winning. This is Abraham. The euphoria, the celebration here. After defeating such a powerful army and rescuing life, Abraham was a hero in the land of Canaan. His fame spread throughout the land. But here lay now a further test for Abraham. The test of success. Listen to how Kent Hughes puts it. So often those who have been stellar in adversity are derailed by success. Their behavior changes in order to take advantage of their fame. Faith in God reverts to faith in self. They begin to believe the good press about them. And so weakened, they succumb to temptations they had easily resisted before. So how would Abraham respond to this more important spiritual battle within his heart? This brings us to the final act in Genesis 14. It's now the battle within Abraham. As we move into Act 3, two battles are over, but another battle is about to begin. And for Abraham, let me tell you, this is the much more difficult battle, the much harder battle that this whole chapter has been leading us up to to see. As you can imagine, news of Abraham's victory spread quickly. And as Abraham is now returning home to Hebron, two kings, two different kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. In verse 17 we read, After his return from the defeat of Cordelomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, That is the king's valley. So apparently the king of Sodom is now all cleaned up after hiding in the tar pits. And now that Abraham has rescued all the provisions and the people from the city of Sodom that the eastern alliance of kings had taken, the king of Sodom now wants to come out and meet Abraham the victor. But another king comes out of nowhere and cuts him off in verse 18. Look at it. And Metelzedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So two kings, here's the picture, here's what's going on. Two different kings come out to meet or to greet Abraham. And the contrast between these two kings could not be greater. Bera, whose name means son of evil, is the king of Sodom. And this king, he rules over the most perverse, vile, morally corrupt city in all the world. In fact, as you know the story, it was so corrupt that later God will bring down sulfur and fire and brimstone and destroy Sodom. Metelzedek, on the other hand, his name actually means the king of righteousness. And he is the king of Salem, later to be called Jerusalem. And so notice the battle within that Abraham faces in response to these two kings. It's in your notes here coming up on the screen. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, blessed Abraham 
And in response, Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils of war. Why? He did so in honor of God for the victory. Now, the interesting thing about Melchizedek here is he's not only the king of Salem, but he's also a priest of the Most High God. That's very unique. So here is a Gentile king who somehow has come to know the one true God who worships God Most High. In fact, this particular name for God is El Elyon, Most High God. And that specific name for God refers to the God above all gods. In other words, it refers to the creator of heaven and earth. It refers to God as the supreme ruler and Lord of all the universe. And somehow, this king, Melchizedek, has come to to know this God and has even become his priest while serving as the king of Salem. Now, I don't know about you, but all that's rather mysterious. And it brings to us a whole lot of questions that remain unanswered. But here's what's most important that I want you to see. Is his ministry to Abraham in this moment. Melchizedek does two things for Abraham. He offers Abraham and his men, did you notice it? He offers them bread and wine to celebrate God's victory. In fact, that is an act of generosity. It's an act of hospitality. In other words, this king lays out a royal banquet for Abraham and his men. Bread and wine. In other words, he is providing them sustenance. He's provision, it's a provision for Abraham and his men. And then as God's priest, Abraham does a second thing for Abraham. He blessed Abraham. And notice his blessing in verses 19 through 20. This is just beautiful. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so through this blessing, here's what's going on. Melchizedek is is now reminding Abraham of something. He's reminding Abraham of of a crucial truth and lesson and principle in his life. He's reminding Abraham that God and God alone is his ultimate source of victory. It's the only reason he had victory. It's as if he is saying to Abraham, listen, how do you, how do you think you managed to defeat those four kings and their armies? Do you, do you think it was your brilliant military strategy? Do you think it was the strength of your 318 men? No way. Listen, God gave you the victory. He's the one who delivered your enemies into your hand. And so without taking anything away from Abraham's courage and his faith, Melchizedek gave all the glory to God for Abraham's victory. Now, how do you think Abraham responds to that? We have one line here in chapter 14 that tells us his response. One sentence. And it comes at the end of verse 20. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Everything of what? The spoils of war that he brought back. Abraham gave this offering, listen to me now, not so much to the king of Salem, 
but rather to God through Melchizedek in his capacity as priest of God Most High. You see, Abraham is recognizing something here that even today we all need to recognize. He's recognizing Melchizedek's blessing as the voice of God. And through his offering, through his giving back, just as we do even in our own lives today, we give through a local church to God. Through this offering, Abraham is giving now all credit and glory to the Lord for his victory. And so when you give even today, we are recognizing the same thing. God is my sustainer. God is my source. And when I give, I am recognizing that. I'm affirming that in my heart. It's because of you, God. You are the possessor of heaven and earth. And while Melchizedek blessed Abraham, here now comes the king of Sodom, and he arrives with a totally different attitude about it all. It's a worldly attitude. It's a consumeristic attitude. In fact, the first words out of his mouth are, give me. Give me. Notice it. Notice the deal that he tries to strike with Abraham in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, what is it? Give me. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. How tempting this deal must have sounded to Abraham. The king of Sodom basically is saying in effect to him, thanks for rescuing all my people. By the way, feel free to keep all the stuff you recovered. And to which I say, what? Big deal. Why? Because by custom in that culture, Abraham was entitled to all the spoils of war. And so Abraham had the right to keep all the plunder. After all, he is the one who risked his life to rescue Lot. And as the saying goes, to the victor goes the spoils. And so no one even then would have criticized Abraham for saying yes to such a lucrative offer. But he didn't say yes. Abraham said no to the king of Sodom. In fact, it is rather interesting. I don't know if you picked up on it when Pastor Chris read it for us. He turned down the king of Sodom immediately. There was no long wait to think about it. Abraham did not say to him, oh, let me, let me go back home and pray about this. Give me a day to pray about it. Listen to Abraham's answer to the king of Sodom in verses 22 through 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, listen, I, I, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Whoa. That oath is is significant to Abraham's victory in this moment of his battle. It is, I, I cannot impress upon you how significant this is. This oath, this, this refusal was, in other words, it's Abraham's declaration of his dependence on and devotion to God Most High. See, Abraham knows something here. He knew that taking such a gift from the king of Sodom 
would now obligate him to that king. It would entangle him with the world. Just as Lot got compromised and entangled by the world. Abraham knew that the source of his victory, the source of his wealth, the source of his blessing was God alone. And so he is now declaring his total allegiance to the Lord. He believed God's promises with all his heart. In fact, he risked everything because of his trust in God's word. Abraham was at that moment victorious in the spiritual battle for his soul. But do not miss this when the oath was made. We read about it at the end of chapter 14, but it's presented to us in past tense. Did you see that? I have lifted my hand to God. In other words, Abraham made this oath, this declaration of his dependence and devotion before he ever enters into the temptation before he ever comes face-to-face with the battle. It's crucial to his victory. You're like, well, when did he make it? We're not told explicitly. My own opinion is you go back to chapter 13, verse 18, where he built that altar. And at that altar, I believe that's when he makes this oath because he has learned in chapter 14, I mean 12, he has seen the disastrous decisions of Lot. God comes to him and tells him again, this land is going to be yours. And Abraham declares at that altar before chapter 14, he declares, here's my dependence on you and my devotion to you. He doesn't wait till he faces temptation. He doesn't wait till he gets into the battle. Listen, I'm telling you, you wait till then, it's too late. You, you will fall every time. You cannot be wishy-washy about your dependence on God and your devotion to God before you face temptation. This is why the importance of daily altars in our life. This is the importance of hearing from God and declaring our allegiance to God on a daily basis if need be. It is the secret to our victories in battle in this world. When's the last time you actually declared your dependence on and your devotion to God? Declared it in a prayer with yourself to the Lord. Even declared it to your spouse. Declared it to your kids. Declared it to another friend. This is who I depend on. The God most high. The one who is possessor of heaven and earth. Because he is the source of all my victories in the battles that I face in this world at conflict. It's him I'm devoted to. My allegiance is given to him. Oh, please don't see this story just as Abraham's story. Abraham is not the only one who faces this same spiritual battle. 
Listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, we also stand here and we stand before the king of Sodom and we stand before the king of Salem and we face the same question that Abraham did. We are standing before two kings and the questions we face is this, who are you depending on? Who are you devoted to? The king of Sodom or the king of Salem? Because the king of Sodom represents the world. He represents all the temporary pleasures of the world. The king of Salem represents the kingdom of God and the eternal promises of God. This ancient story, it forces us to confront some very heart-penetrating questions. Is God enough for you? Or do you also think in your own mind that you need what the world has to offer. Like Abraham, oh, oh, that that you here this morning, like myself, that all of us here together, that we we would lift our hands high to God. And we would declare our dependence on and devotion to God most high. One final question. I know I'm going over. Bear with me here. One final question. Who is Melchizedek? He's only mentioned three times in the Bible. Here in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and the book of Hebrews. And what we learn about this king and priest, he is actually a picture of our king and priest, Jesus Christ. Notice this in your notes. Melchizedek pictures Jesus, who is a far better and greater king and priest who offered his body and blood on the cross in victory over sin and death. Therefore, I plead with you, I encourage you, he is worthy, this king and priest is worthy of your devotion and trust in worship. Now, Melchizedek in Abraham's context was not Jesus, but the king and priest Abraham met was simply a picture of Jesus, the one who came as our king and priest. And so when you look to Jesus by faith, we find in him the mercy and grace sufficient to save us from our sins. We find in him the salvation we desperately need. In fact, that day in the valley, Abraham found what all in Christ find to be true. Our perfect king and priest is far better than anything. And this is why it says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. And everything hinges on that phrase. He always lives. Easter's coming. Jesus died, but he rose again. He always lives. If Jesus is dead, we have no hope. Our faith is in vain. But if Jesus is alive, he is able to save us completely and forever. Listen, he is also, until he comes again, he is our provision. He is our sustenance. He is where we find meaning and purpose. Just as Melchizedek offered bread and wine to Abraham and his men. Jesus becomes the bread and the wine for us. And that's why we're going to participate in communion. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the example of Abraham's faith here in these battles. Let us learn from him. We pray that you would strengthen our own faith. He is to 
us to walk in dependence on you. May that be true and in devotion to you. May we see in Jesus that he is worthy of our trust and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's interesting that Melchizedek served Abraham bread and wine. Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. The bread and wine he served is a picture of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. And so by us here eating the bread, drinking the juice, let us remember Jesus Christ is our perfect king and priest. And so if you here this morning are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is you have trusted Christ for salvation, you identify with Christ in baptism, and you have committed to Christ's body in a membership of of a local church, not necessarily ours, but a church of like faith and practice like ours, then we invite you to participate in communion located at the four corners of the auditorium. And as you take the bread and cup back to your seat, I ask you to wait so that we may eat and drink it together. And so you may stand and come at your convenience to grab the juice and the bread and take it back to your seat.